You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast episode was produced in partnership with Penguin Random House. Florida's Dozier School for Boys. The Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys first opened its doors on January 1st, 1900 in Mariana, Florida, a panhandle city seated in Jackson County, Florida. The city of Mariana has a brutal and diabolical history stretching back to the Civil War and Reconstruction period of the United States. Being the site of a small yet important Civil War battle where about 18 people died and another 40 were wounded. The city was home to violence instigated by the Ku Klux Klan during the Reconstruction period, and this was juxtaposed to massive disenfranchisement and Jim Crow violence handed down to African Americans living in and around the city. Gubernatorial candidate and state senator William H. Milton was instrumental in getting the institution brought to his hometown of Mariana and collected more than 1,200 acres and $1,400 in donations as several towns competed to build the school in their community. The 1,200 acres was substantially more than the 350 acres mandated by the state for the school. W.H. Milton was the grandson of John Milton, Florida's governor through the Civil War. Combined, the Milton family gave more than $200 and 40 acres to bring the school to Mariana, more than any other donor or family, and continued to play roles at the school in various administrative positions for decades to come, including positions of superintendent and president of the board. This violence and vitriolic energy manifested itself in the Dozier School for Boys. The main purpose of this school was to reform juveniles. Kids would be sent here originally for crimes like theft and murder, but the rules were later amended for kids to be sent here for small offenses such as vagrancy and sometimes for no offenses at all. So if you were a ward of the state, If you didn't have any parents or anyone to care for you, you could be sent to this school. The school originally housed kids as young as five years old, and the abuse that happened at this school was on a wide scale. In its first 20 years of operations, there were six state-led inspections of the school. There were reports of brutal beatings, kids being forced to wear leg irons, peonage, massive suffering, and children dying. A recent investigation in 2008 and 2009 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement into the deaths that occurred at the school reported 81 school-related deaths from 1911 to 1973. It was reported that 31 of these boys were buried on the school grounds. It was reported that 31 of these boys were buried on the school grounds, while others were shipped home to families or buried in unknown locations. There was an area at the school named Boot Hill Cemetery, and there were recorded burials from 1914 to 1952. There was no exact documentation of who was buried there or how many bodies were buried there altogether. The original name of the school was the Florida State Reform School. The school remained segregated until 1968 because segregation and Jim Crow laws permeated every single facet of Florida life and laws. Segregation at the school included all living, dining, educational, religious, and work-related activities and continued until the late 1960s. 
The Florida Reform School, or the Dozier School, was created through an act to provide for the locating and erecting a state reform school and to appropriate money therefore. The objective in creating the reform school was to provide a safe and productive alternative for juvenile offenders away from the convict lease system. <laughs> okay. According to the laws of Florida, the purpose was to create a reform school where the young offender of law, separated from vicious associates, may receive physical, intellectual, and moral training, be reformed and restored to the community with purpose and character fitting for a good citizen, an honorable and an honest man with a trade or skilled occupation fitting such person for self-maintenance. Starting in the 2000s, hundreds of men came forward to tell their story and experiences of life at the Dozier School. They told of the abuse they suffered on campus in a place called the White House, and this led to the men who came out to speak their stories being referred to as the White House Boys. They talked about the people they watched die, alluding to a lot of the bodies that have been discovered buried on this campus. A former student named Jerry Cooper talked about how he was sentenced to the school in 1961 at the age of 16 for car theft. He said once he got to the school, he quickly discovered the harsh reality of the abuse there. He said he was taken to the White House at 2 a.m., tied to a bed, and beat with a leather strap. Archaeologists have done extensive research and digging on the campus, finding some graves they suspect originally had multiple people but there's been little to no records of where and why these boys were buried at this school. On August 6, 2013, Governor Rick Scott and the Florida Cabinet issued a permit allowing a team of University of South Florida anthropologists and archaeologists to excavate and examine the remains of any and all boys buried at the Dozier site. A spokesperson for the White House boys named Robert Starley stated, the school segregated white and black inmates and remains are located where black inmates were held. He suspects there is another white cemetery that hasn't been discovered. Robert Starley also said, I think that there are at least 100 more bodies up there. At some point, they are going to find more bodies. I'm dead certain of that. There has to be a white graveyard on the white site. Bones, teeth, and other artifacts were extracted from the grave sites and were sent to the University of North Texas Health Center. The University of South Florida determined in 2014 that the excavation yielded 55 bodies. To this day, no real restitution or compensation has been given to the White House boys or family members of the deceased. A reform school for children was never a school at all. It was just another excuse for a state-sanctioned prison but for kids. The Dozier School for Boys closed officially in 2011. It was open for more than 100 years. Many people believe that there are over 100 bodies buried on these school grounds and that the work should not stop until every body is found. But we will probably never know. Now, let's get into the book. First and foremost, I want to thank everyone who took the time out to purchase the book or go to your local library to grab it and read it. We had over 50 people join this first initial iteration of the book club, which is absolutely awesome. And this is definitely going to be an ongoing thing that we do here at the Redacted History Podcast. If you haven't read the book and you plan on doing so, that's cool. Pause this episode and come back once you're done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode, we're going to be discussing The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. The Nickel Boys, in my opinion, is a masterpiece. It is a look into the eyes of what it would be like to be subjected to the Dozier School. The book opens with a prologue telling us about the views of an older black man named Elwood Curtis, a former nickel boy. He has not really dealt with the past or the trauma that he experienced as a kid at the Nickel Academy. But when unmarked graves are found on the school grounds, he knows that it is his duty to go tell his truth. The book stars our main protagonist, Elwood, a black teenage boy in 1962, Tallahassee, Florida, living in the midst of Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. Elwood, by all accords, is a model kid. He's a perfect kid through and through. He has goals, aspirations. He wants to go to high school and then he wants to go to college. And at this time, going to college could have been considered a pipe dream for a black kid. He wants to make something of himself despite everything that life has thrown at him, both by circumstance and by the fact that he was born black in the deep Jim Crow South, where the rules favor no black person, no matter your aptitude and no matter your passions. Elwood's parents abandoned him when he was a small child, whisking away to the other side of the country to escape Jim Crow and leaving their child behind for basically no good reason other than pure selfishness, in my opinion. Them running away from Jim Crow and fleeing West was illustrative of the Great Migration, which was a mass exodus movement of black Americans from the Jim Crow South to the North, Northeast, West and Midwest regions of the United States. From about 1915 to 1970, black Americans in mass picked their things up in Virginia and North Carolina. They packed their suitcases in Alabama and Louisiana. They dropped everything in Arkansas and Florida and ran away by car, train, or foot. They entered places filled with new opportunity and overcrowded populations like Detroit, Cleveland, New York City, and Oakland. My entire existence is actually a direct result of the Great Migration. My great-grandparents migrated from Arkansas, Mississippi, and North Carolina, and ended up in Cleveland, Ohio, where both of my parents were born. If there was ever a spinoff of the Nickel Boys, I would love to see a first-person account of Elwood's parents and what happened to them. What went through their mind when they decided to leave Florida and leave their child behind? What were their experiences when they left Florida and ventured west? How were they treated? Was it worth it? Why? But back to Elwood. Due to his parents leaving, he was taken under the care and guidance of his maternal grandmother, Harriet. He is responsible and inquisitive and inspired by the practices and teachings of the great Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., from the age of nine through his teenage years, Elwood would spend time at the Richmond Hotel where his grandmother worked. He would spend his time in the kitchen participating in dishwashing competitions with the staff and would oftentimes be made the butt of the jokes there. 
It was a hotel with a restaurant where only white people were allowed to dine, and Elwood would have an inner monologue with himself. As he stood in the kitchen, he hoped that one day the doors would open to the dining room and he would see a black person dining there. Elwood gets a job at a cigar shop ran by a man named Mr. Marconi. As he continues to work and become his own person, he becomes even more immersed and enthralled with the civil rights movement. He even attends a protest in the city where one of his black teachers begins to take an interest in Elwood and his academic prowess and arranges it so that Elwood can start taking classes at a community college. Elwood, excited to be furthering his academic studies at an accelerated rate, hitchhikes to the school and ends up in a stolen vehicle where he and the driver are arrested by the police. Despite being a literal kid and having no prior criminal history, Elwood is sentenced to a reform school, the Nickel Academy. One thing I noticed in this first part of the book is the overall trusting nature of Elwood and his want to do right. His want, like he really wanted to do the right thing, but this was sort of a double-edged sword of a character trait. And him being so young and a black boy, he had to learn this lesson really early. Elwood trusted a lot of people, and this is what ended up getting him into the situations that he was in. He trusted his teachers. He trusted the man in the car. He trusted the words of Martin Luther King Jr. He trusted society that there would be changes made. Elwood gets to Nickel Academy, still with an optimistic attitude. Nickel Academy is a parallel. This is a historically fictional book, but Nickel Academy is meant to serve as the fictional Dozier School, just so we're all on the same page. The school is segregated, just like the Dozier School, of course, with the white and the black kids living in separate dormitories. Elwood is shown around the school by another kid named Desmond, where he quickly learns the laws of the land. The school is not really providing an education at all, even though the kids that are there are clearly in need of one because they're kids. The boys on campus are meant to keep up the campus with work duties and hard labor. He learns that there is a ranking tier system where one can move up through, and once you get to the top, the ace tier, you are released from nickel. Sounds easy, right? Elwood and his do-good nature quickly get him into trouble when he tries to intervene on a smaller kid getting bullied by bigger kids. Elwood and three of the kids involved are woken up in the middle of the night where they are taken to a white shack on campus called the White House or the Ice Cream Factory because when boys left the Ice Cream Factory, they had different colored bruises. And at the White House, Elwood and these boys were given a brutal, brutal, brutal beating which lands Elwood in the infirmary for two weeks. This is where we get a better chance to know Elwood's closest friend at Nickel, a boy named Turner, who is the exact opposite of Elwood. Elwood is positive. He's hopeful. He's optimistic. He believes that everyone in the world is good. Turner, yeah, Turner is the exact opposite. I'm not even going to list all his traits, but Turner is the exact opposite. Turner was actually in the infirmary because he ate soap on purpose just to land himself there to get out of work duty and to be with Elwood. This is where they pose differing philosophies to one another. Like I said, Elwood believes that despite everything that has happened, people have the propensity to change. And Turner believes that this is all a load of BS. People are evil. The world is evil and bad things will happen. 
We eventually learned that Turner has a hard life. He's had a hard life that landed him in nickel in the first place. And that is, of course, completely opposite of Elwood. He didn't come from a loving family. His mom died when he was a kid from alcohol. His journey to the school was completely different than Elwood's. He was considered a troublemaker and had basically gotten there on purpose by taunting white people. So throughout the entire book, we jump back and forth a little bit between Elwood and the 1960s at Nickel Academy. And we jump to flash forwards uh, Elwood's life. We see him as a young adult in New York in the 70s and the 80s. He is out of Nickel and alive, but the book never really discusses how Elwood got there. We just see him as an adult, clearly battling PTSD, clearly battling demons. He eventually starts his own moving company. He gets married. The moving company starts meager and eventually morphs into a successful and profitable business with employees and trucks. During a 1980s flash forward, Elwood bumps into a former nickel schoolmate named Chicky Pete, who has just left rehab and is unemployed, but is in high spirits and happy to see Elwood. This encounter is a harsh reminder to Elwood of the damage that Nickel did to these boys. If you left, you never really left. You were never whole again. We experience Elwood's love life, his view of the world and New York City, and even his journey to obtain his GED. So we've got Elwood in the future future in the 2000s. That was the prologue. And then we got these flash forwards of Elwood in the 70s and the 80s. But how did he get there? Perhaps the part of the book that jarred me more than others was the boxing match. Every year at the school, there would be a boxing match between a kid from the black side and a kid from the white side. The boxing match had historically been won by the black kids, and this time was looking to be no different. The black fighter was a large, imposing bully named Griff, and he was looking to win fairly easily. And despite him being a bully, the black kids rallied behind him because him winning was a symbolic win for all of them. Perhaps the one time that they felt they could control something at the school was the boxing match. Griff was fighting a formidable opponent, a white boy named Chet. And prior to the fight, Turner overheard Griff being told by the superintendent of the school to throw the fight and lose on purpose. The boxing match was a spectacle. It was an event with the entire school turning out, including the administration and big wigs up top and even their spouses. Griff ended up winning the fight in the third and final round and immediately became distraught in the ring, pleading out that he lost track of the round count and thought it was only the second round. He didn't mean to win. Griff, after the fight, was never seen again. The boys at the school conjured up tales that Griff had actually run away and escaped, but this was not the case. After the fight, he was taken out back, as they called it, in the middle of the night, chained between two oak trees and beaten to death. His body was dug up 50 years later. Griff being the superior fighter and not being allowed to even properly compete due to the powers that be was an all too true experience for black Americans. You see, to me, Nickel Academy was serving as a microcosm of the real world, especially the real Jim Crow world. And Elwood was seeing these things in real time. It was like his time at Nickel was literally deconstructing what he thought the world was. And like I said, it really sucked that Elwood had to experience these things as a young kid. 
The dark realities of the school continue to be told throughout the book. And as we learn more dark realities, we saw Elwood's positive attitude seem to dwindle. Soon thereafter, his grandmother showed up to the school and said that the lawyer that was working on Elwood's appeal to get him out of nickel had ran off with their money. Elwood deduced that there were only four ways to get out of nickel. Serve your sentence or age out of nickel by turning 18 years old or work your way up to ace status, which was nearly impossible because the school officials reserved the right to knock you down a ranking due to the most minor infractions, as you can imagine how petty they probably were. Number two, the court could intervene, which rarely ever happened. Number three, the third way out was death. This would either be from natural causes or more often than not, it would be due to the abuse doled out by the nickel employees. And number four, the fourth option was to run away, but this rarely worked out. Uh, one of the chapters that stood out the most to me was the chapter about Clayton. The book tells this heartbreaking story of a boy named Clayton who was a legend, a revered legend who ran away from nickel in the 1950s. Um, all of the boys at present nickel in the 1960s thought that Clayton was one of the ones that got away. But in reality, Clayton ran away because he had been repeatedly sexually abused by one of the housemen, which was just a term for one of the overseers at nickel, basically a white overseer. Clayton had a plan to run away to his sister's house in Tallahassee, Florida but he ended up being picked up by a member of the board of directors at Nickel. Now, Clayton's story was so moving to me. I, I was just, I was rooting for him the entire time while I was reading his chapter or his excerpt in a chapter. Uh, and uh, him, you know, being hungry, stealing clothes out of a, a woman's house, and she kind of just watches him run away. Um, and then him being picked up trusting someone the same way Elwood trusts people. Um, and that someone, like I said, ended up being the one of the directors at Nickel on the board of directors. Clayton was taken back to Nickel, taken out back, beaten to death and buried on the school grounds. The story reaches a pivotal point when Elwood decides to fight back. He and Turner had been repeatedly taken out on work duty throughout the city, doing odd jobs for important members of the community under the guise of community service. Elwood had been documenting everything and the illegalities of their situation and planned to give these accounts to the men conducting a surprise state inspection of the school. Turner tells Elwood that this is a terrible idea and it's going to get him killed. And Turner, for whatever reason, offers to take the fall for Elwood and give the note out himself, give the note to one of the inspectors himself. Turner gives the note to one of the inspectors. And I thought this was so interesting that, you know, Turner really loved Elwood and he showed it in like the weirdest ways. Like this was literally Turner saying, I'm willing to die for you. This is one of Elwood's immense acts of trust. And he trusts that the state inspectors are bound by duty and will do the right thing if given this vital information of the happenings at the school. He was wrong. They came for Elwood in the middle of the night, took him to the White House and beat him savagely, and then locked him in a tiny makeshift cell while they waited until the heat from the state died down. Elwood is locked in this small cell for three weeks and he reflects on his life and decisions. He knows what's coming. He reflects on the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, we will not only win freedom for ourselves, 
we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory, unquote. He reflected on King's words, which basically said to love those who harm you. And Elwood was just becoming fed up. The old Elwood would have held on to those words from Dr. King in that moment, but he was officially defeated and disillusioned. Turner came for Elwood in the middle of the night and informed him that the noise had died down and the school officials intended on taking Elwood out back the following night and killing him. The same fate as Griff, the same fate as Clayton and so many boys before them. Turner breaks Elwood out and they steal bikes from campus and make their way for Tallahassee in the middle of the night. Earlier in the book, Turner had told Elwood that if you ever run, don't ever take anyone with you. But he was breaking his own rule by choosing to escape with Elwood. I truly enjoyed the love that Turner had showed for Elwood. Uh, you know, Turner being someone that didn't have anybody his entire life. And, you know, he could have been a recluse and denied, you know, that that camaraderie, that brotherhood with Elwood. And he he showed up for Elwood in every way. They didn't get far because of Elwood's debilitated state, and that only slowed them down. The next day, they saw a nickel community van pull up behind them and two nickel employees hop out with guns. Elwood and Turner make a mad dash for a field and run through the field. Turner is faster, of course, and the employees take a shot and they miss. They shoot again. Turner turns around and sees Elwood fall with his arms outstretched and he dies. Turner keeps running. So this was the final chapter of the book. Then there was the epilogue and the epilogue absolutely broke me. That is the only way that I can put it. We find out that all the flash forwards from the 70s through the 2000s, the prologue and all the flash forward chapters from Elwood's perspective was really Turner all along. And there were hints everywhere uh, Chicky Pete had asked Elwood, hey, whatever happened to your friend? And, you know, then Chicky Pete asks Elwood, hey, man, you, know, you said you got a moving company. You know, can you give me, you know, I'm looking for a job. Can you give me a job? You know, I'm ready to work. And then Elwood kind of just, you know, turns him down. And like, it makes sense why he turned him down now. You know, you know, Turner going to get his GED or Elwood going to get his GED, it seemed really out of character. You know, Elwood being, you know, was always presented at the beginning of the book and throughout the book as the smart, studious, uh, you know, go-getter in the classroom. And, you know, it was just those subtle hints that it was Turner the entire time. So, like I said, we find out that all the flash forwards through the 70s, through the 80s, 90s, the 2000s, were from El were for Turner's perspective, acting as Elwood. Uh, we see the decision to go back to Nickel, back to Florida, was really Turner, Jack Turner, his real name. We see Turner tell his wife that his real name was Jack, who Elwood really was, Jack Turner. She knew he had a chalky past. She knew small details about Nickel, but didn't know the whole truth. Turner had taken Elwood's identity as a way to pay homage to his friend and so that his name would never die. He started using the name two weeks after his escape from Nickel. He said it felt right to honor his friend. 
Turner had built a successful moving business. He had married a beautiful woman. He was traveling back almost 60 years later to tell his truth of what happened at Nickel. The school had been closed after over 100 years of being open in 2011, mirroring, mirroring exactly what happened to the Dozier School. The graves had been found. Bodies had been dug up. Former white students were due to tell their truths at a press conference, and Turner knew it was his duty to speak on behalf of the black boys who had endured Nickel, the black boys that were not going to come back, especially for the ones who didn't survive. This is a full character moment for Turner, who was acting as Elwood would have, supporting the fight for justice and the fight for truth. When Turner gets to Tallahassee, we get the fullest circle moment to end the book. He sits down at a restaurant, formerly known as the Richmond, we find out. The same hotel where Elwood stood almost 60 years prior, hoping that one day he would see a black person in the dining room. I didn't know the characters in this book and the events were fictional and based on a true story until I finished the book because everything felt so real. What I love so much about Colson Whitehead's work is his ability to take a real existing world with context and historical relevance and nuance behind it and craft a character and insert them into the world flawlessly and make you as the reader believe that you're invested in a real person. That takes a lot of talent and I believe it speaks to the overall black experience and consciousness. Elwood was not a real person. Turner wasn't a real person, but the book made them feel so real. When I was finished reading, my chest was heavy for the both of them, but mostly Elwood, because Elwood deserved so much more. So let's do a quick Q&A portion for the book club uh, to end the podcast. I have three questions from three different people that I picked out from TikTok and Instagram. So the first one comes from Punk's Chick. She said, I felt like the author eased us into the brutal reality that these children lived, like the ice cream factory or the White House, for example. Sounds innocent enough until you realize that's the place the children were beaten, bloodied, and bruised. What was the motivation for presenting things in a gentle light before revealing the ugly truths? I think that the motivation for presenting things in... Uh, gentle light before the ugly truths and the, the way that I see it was we were going through the experience and the deconstruction with Elwood in real time um, like it take it took a lot of time for Elwood to fully deconstruct it took him basically into the end of his life when he was at the end of the road um, so I felt like a lot of that was just us seeing it through Elwood's eyes. He was so optimistic and really naive, but, you know, he was a, a teenager. He was a kid. You know, even after he received his brutal beating at the White House, he was still in the infirmary, you know, having that that uh, debate over uh, the way that him and Turner saw things. You know, they were butting heads about, you know, how they both saw the world, you know, so. I think that we were just really seeing everything through Elwood's eyes and kind of going through his deconstruction with him. Thank you for the question. NazN6764 says, this book was amazing. I've gotten three other people to read, listen to it. Awesome. Thank you. Could you talk about real life examples from that time? Um, so I think that the Dozier School and Nickel Academy uh, were both, you know, 
there were and when we when we see the Civil War and we see Reconstruction and we go all the way through Jim Crow, uh, arresting people for uh, vagrancy, small, you know, petty crimes. This was this was an experience that black people were regularly experiencing. Um, And I feel like like I said earlier in the show, I feel like the Dozier School, Nickel Academy, these were just, you know, barbaric excuses for state sanctioned violence. And we see this throughout, you know, from Reconstruction all the way up until present day in 2023 with the prison industrial complex. Um, You know, if you think that the Dozier School was not bringing in money, they had donors, you know, there were people, important people at the, you know, the head of the state of Florida that were invested in this school. You know, it's all about money. It's all about human capital. It's all about taking advantage of marginalized populations. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing real effects real life examples, I should say, of places like the Dozier School and the Nickel Academy, you know, in present day. And then when you have, you know, those kids who are in these reformatories, in these quote unquote schools, you know, what do you think is going to happen to these kids once they be, they age out and they become adults? They're going to end up right back in you know, actual prison. They're going to end up right back in the penitentiary, in jail. Um, It's meant to be a cycle, you know. Uh, So, you know, things are just meant to keep people marginalized. So that's kind of, you know, I see that happen. I see the Dozier School and the Nickel Academy and the systems that allow those things to exist. I see those happening every day. You know, we we, we see that lived experience today in 2023. Thank you for that question. And the last question is going to come from uh, uh, this one's going to be from Instagram. One of the questions from Instagram uh, from underscore HD Valadez. Uh, this is kind of th- uh, two or three questions in one. What theme in this book resonated with you the most? I think trauma. Trauma was a, you know, a big theme in this book i'll say two i'll say trauma and i will say you know the the dichotomy of who we are as people uh there's a quote that i wanted to read uh colson whitehead the author has a really awesome quote that resonated with me and kind of goes to this question he described the characters of elwood curtis and turner as two different parts of my personality being the Elwood Curtis, the optimistic or hopeful part of me that believes we can make the world a better place if we keep working at it. And Jack Turner, the cynical side that says, no, this country is founded on genocide, murder and slavery, and it will always be that way. And I found that as I get older, you know, undergraduate, you know, college experience as I'm, you know, I'm 27 I'll be 28 this year. And as I get older and I read more and I, you know, have more conversations with people, I feel myself being Turner, Jack Turner. I was Elwood to a certain extent in college as a teenager. I was Elwood. I saw the good in everything. I saw the good in America. Um, I used to wear a USA T-shirt, uh, uh, you know, on the 4th of July, um, You know, I was very evangelical, not saying there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, I've done like some deconstructing of all of that, you know, over the last five or six years. So I definitely was Elwood, but I feel myself being more so Turner 
when I look at the state of our country, the state of the world. Um, so I definitely resonated, especially with the conversations that Elwood and Turner were having throughout the book when, you know, they were doing their their back and forth. And Elwood's like, no, things are good, man. We can do this. We can change this. And Turner's like, no. And I found myself rooting for Turner. Like, yeah, Turner, that, that I agree. I'm with Turner. Um, and then uh, the last part of this question says, Elwood mentions that he was woke to the world at six years old. What does that mean to you? When do you think most black children realize the racism and inequities in the world? When do you recall first noticing? Um, I think that there are a lot of situations in which black children are forced to grow up a lot quicker um, because of the way that society views them. Um, we can look at, you know, cases of police brutality uh, with Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, where a lot of the times the powers that be law enforcement, you know, people that are in charge of society, uh, you know, racial biases manifest themselves in the craziest ways and it does not matter how you know old you are Trayvon Martin was called a man you know when uh, George Zimmerman gunning him down was justified um I can say that um I can't speak for you know every black child but I do think that uh, black children are forced to grow up a, a lot quicker um and I'm very interested to see in terms of what black children going forward are going to like what type of awakening they're going to have as children, as adolescents, as teenagers, when it comes to learning about the world around them based on how, you know, laws and, you know, leaders in our country are trying to strip away education and the teachings of things like racism, critical race theory, real historical you know, context with nuance and things of that nature. I first started noticing all these things. I, I had some questions, I think, as a sophomore and junior in high school for the first time, you know, and I, I went to high school in Huntersville, North Carolina. AP, U.S. history, all we're learning about is the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And then we jump right to World War II. And then we learn about the Cold War. And then we learn about, you know, nationalism, imperialism. And there was, I, I knew, hey, there's something not being taught here. Why aren't we learning, you know, these cool things about black revolutionaries? We're learning about the Civil War, but we're not learning about the black soldiers that fought in the Civil War. We're not learning about the black soldiers that fought in the American Revolution. Why aren't we learning about the Haitian Revolution? Why can't we learn about Nat Turner? Why can't we learn? If you're going to teach us about white people, why can't we learn about John Brown? You know, so that's when I first started asking questions. And then I started deconstructing more and more and more once I got to college. And I hate the fact that it took me until I was like 24, 25 to ask the real questions. But I think I'm on a really good trajectory. So that's the end of our Q&A portion. Thank you guys so much for all the questions that y'all submitted. Didn't want to take up too much time with too many questions, but I truly appreciate all the questions that were submitted. We're going to be doing this again with the next book that we end up reading. So thank you. The Nickel Boys is a national bestseller, and the author, Colson Whitehead, has won a Pulitzer Prize, which is well-deserved. I encourage you all to go check out other titles from him, like The Underground Railroad and The Crook Manifesto. And let me know which books you all want to see next in our book club series. Huge thank you to Penguin Random House Publishing for collaborating with me on this podcast episode. And I'm so thankful that we were able to do something this impactful for Black History Month. Until next time. Yo, if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think on Instagram. Go follow us there. Go subscribe to us on YouTube as well. I truly appreciate all the love. 
Thank you.